Thanks for listening to this sermon from River of Life Alliance Church. We hope the Holy Spirit uses it to point you toward Jesus. If you call River of Life home, we'd encourage you to join a journey group where you can unpack our sermons with a group of people who want to get to know you, who will care for you, read the Bible with you, pray over you, and serve alongside you. A little family business to give you an update on, to let you know some things that are happening in the church. As you know, uh, just over a month ago, just before I came, we had the send-off for Pastor John, and he went on to another great ministry, and uh, God's using him there. And so as I've arrived and gotten settled and getting going with things, we are beginning to look at uh, the future of student ministries and what that looks like for us as a church. And um, so we've been in the process of determining that and writing a job description for pastor of student ministries and what that'll look like. And uh, very soon here, we will begin collecting names and uh, looking for potential uh, men who could fill that position. And um, that list will be gathered and then narrowed down and a screening committee will look at that list. And then that screening committee will recommend a name to the governing board who will then... uh, recommend or call somebody to come candidate and uh, examine uh, whether this would be the person that God has called uh, to us as a church to serve us in student ministries. And so we just want to give you an update on that to let you know what's happening, that things are happening behind the scenes, even if you don't know that or haven't heard, but uh, things are moving forward. But we would covet your prayers. And uh, we, we just truly believe that God already has this person lined up for us. We just have to follow him and seek him as we, as we look for who this person would be. And uh, so be praying about that. And uh, I know that God will lead us to the right person. We don't want to be in a rush. I'd rather find the right person than rush into something. Would you all agree with that? We need the right person, the person that God wants for us as a church. And uh, so be praying for that. Um, how long will it take? <laughs> I wish I knew the answer. And uh, it could be a couple of months. It could be a little longer than that. It all depends on how quickly God puts that all together. And uh, so I'm praying that it's fast. And uh, that would be wonderful if God does that. But uh, I want to let you know, too, for a youth group uh, coming up into the fall. You know, through the summer months, we do take the fall off with youth group. But uh, starting August 16th, the first day that public school starts back, uh, youth group will kick off on Wednesday nights. And so... Um, middle school all the way through high school, you're invited to come that night and all the information will be promoted in these next couple of weeks. You'll be hearing more about that. But we will be uh, beginning as volunteers take on that, those roles and keep things moving forward in youth ministry. So I'm excited about what God has for the future. He has been faithful to us in the past and he will be in the future. Can we agree on that? Amen. Yep, God will be. We're going to turn our attention to the word this morning, and so let's bow our heads as we come to that and uh, just ask for a special anointing from God in our time as we spend uh, in his word. Lord, in this room, you've gathered people together to come seek you that come from all different places, lots of different backgrounds and lots of different life stories, lots of different experiences going on in our lives right now. Lord, there are certainly some people in here who are hurting and broken this morning and in need of encouragement. There's others in this room, Lord, that are walking very closely with you this morning and look forward to the challenge and look forward to what you'll bring to them. There's others who have wandered from you or are dodging you. And Lord, confusion could be a part of 
what's in some people's minds. But we have this in common, Lord. We all need you. And God, I pray that this morning that the Spirit of Christ would reign in this room, that we all hear from you. Lord, we want, I want more of you and less of me. And may the words that are spoken this morning be all honoring and glorifying to you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, asking for your help. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, have you ever received a piece of information about somebody that changed the way you had to behave around them? Some of you are Star Wars fans, aren't you? Raise your hand. You've got to be bold and proud. Oh, there's a lot in this service. First service didn't have very many. I'm not a huge Star Wars guy, but I, I can appreciate Star Wars. It's kind of like a Western, but in sci-fi theme. So I, I kind of appreciate it. But Star Wars has this one line that everybody seems to know. In The Empire Strikes Back, you've got Luke, who's the, one of the main characters. And Luke has been raised not knowing who his family is. And Luke, all the while as he's grown up, he doesn't know who he is. And some of his identity is missing because he doesn't know who dad is in his life. And he's fighting the forces of evil in this movie. And he comes to this point where he's facing the other big character in Star Wars named Darth Vader. You know Darth Vader? Everybody could do his voice together. I won't make you do it. But there's this part where they're facing each other and Darth Vader wants Luke to join the dark side and Luke doesn't want to. And so Darth Vader pulls out the, the, most, the strongest thing he can do to try to pull him over to that side and he declares to Luke, Luke, I am your father. <laughs> you remember that line? You could all say it with me. Should we do it? Let's just do it. Ready? Luke, I am your father. Okay, Luke had to change the way he behaved. It caused him to have a conflict of what am I going to do now that he has this information about who Darth Vader is. And he was in a huge conflict internally and he had to go to battle against his dad right there. You know, Jesus continually brings out points about who he is that causes a conflict inside of us to deal with whether we're going to respond to it or not. We're going to continue on today in this series that we've called Seek, where we look at the I am statements about Jesus, where we look at these declarations about who Jesus is and the statement that we come across today causes an enormous conflict in the crowd. And you can turn to John chapter 8 in your Bibles if you have a Bible with you or turn one on if you have a phone with you. And here in this, he makes a claim that is deep, it's complex, it's far-reaching, it's controversial. It's joy-giving and it's faith-building all at the same time. How it can be packed with all that stuff, I don't know, but you'll see as we get into it. Now, we can't overstate the importance of Jesus appearing on the scene, can we? The fact that Jesus came and revealed himself to humanity, God incarnate, where we can actually see God, is absolutely miraculous. It's amazing. And when we see what Jesus did, he did not simply come to start something new. He came rather to complete the mission of the Old Testament, to complete the law in the Old Testament. And he's in that. People don't understand him, but he's going to keep the ball moving forward in in faith. And it's packed with all kinds of bonuses, all kinds of good things as people understand who God is through the person of Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 says this about him. He's the image of the invisible God, the God that we couldn't see. He's now the image of that, the firstborn of all creation. 
Meaning that Christ came into the world so that we as people can now see and know what God is like. A few verses later in Colossians, it says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. But I want you to think about something for just a moment. And really think about this, not just let this go past. Imagine what it would be like if Jesus never came to the earth. Imagine how many pieces of our understanding of who God is were filled in because of Jesus coming to the earth. Maybe God could have come up with another solution of how to save mankind. So let's pretend that he came up with another solution. But we never had the opportunity to see him as humanity. We never had an opportunity to read his words and understand the stories and the miracles and all the things that God did through the person of Jesus in Scripture. Imagine what faith would be like. We'd really have no faith. It'd be tough. That's what the people in the Old Testament lived with. They had never actually seen God. And that's where we find ourselves in this story, is Jesus is now on the scene. And when we don't have all the pieces to what's going on in life, when we have questions about faith, what do we naturally do? We fill in the blanks, right? Through assumptions, through our experiences, we fill in the blanks and we decide, hey, here's what it is. And that's what people were doing in this story. It's always happened. And so when we encounter stuff that we don't understand or we come across maybe randomly here and there, we can sometimes grow angry. I don't like that. I don't want to deal with that. And that's what happened to the crowds. Other times we can just reject it. Other times we let it destroy our faith and tear down faith. Or we have the opportunity to wrestle through it and allow God to minister and work in us as we wrestle through it. That kind of a conflict is exactly what happens here. And so the people are filling in the story, filling in who Jesus is with assumptions and beliefs that they don't understand, but they're just making up because they're doing the best they can. And when Jesus speaks into confusion, he always brings clarity. And the words of Jesus today bring clarity to a very confusing scenario about who God is, who Jesus is specifically. And so John chapter 8, verse 58, we find this great statement that Jesus makes about himself, revealing who he is. In John eight fifty-eight, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. Truly, truly. What does he mean? Why is he saying that? Is he trying to say, hey, now I'm going to say something true as if the other stuff wasn't true? Is he trying to really emphasize that? Well, kind of, but not really. I mean, what he's, everything he has said has always been true. But the, 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 the emphasis is not on the idea that Jesus is telling the truth, but on the fact that the, what Jesus is about to say is significant. And it's important for us to listen to. He really wants us to get this part. So he's going to make a statement based on his own authority. Something that sets him apart from the other rabbis of the day. He's making a claim that may be controversial, but is simply true. He's making one, a claim about himself that's verified by his actions. And what is that claim? That before Abraham was, I am. That may not mean as much to us, but listen to what he's doing. He's laying claim to something. He's laying claim to this, that he is God. 
that he is God. That while the Jews laid claim to following Abraham and don't need to follow Jesus, he was telling them that he supersedes Abraham. That he existed before Abraham was even born. That before Abraham was even created, he has existed. In other words, Jesus is God. This claim has divided people for 2,000 years. Think about that. Every religion is divided over this claim. Whether it's atheist, whether it's Buddhist, whether it's Muslim, whether it's the Western Colorado independence, whether it's New Age people, this is a statement that has divided people for millennia. And we believe by, in Christ's claim to deity that he is the Son of Man. That he is the son of God. And we accept by his word and his authority, backed by the testimony of the spirit and the evidence of his life, that that is actually true. And the Jews understood what he was saying about himself here. Because what happens immediately after he makes that statement? Scripture says they picked up stones to throw at him. They were ready to stone him to death. But Jesus slips away and he went out of the temple. And so Jesus here makes the only I am statement in the book of John that is not a metaphor where we would use the word like. He is like, like the light. He is like the bread of life. Here he says he is this. Jesus evokes in this statement a memory that in the Jewish mind would take them all the way back in their history to the very first I am statement. He's laying claim that he has existed way before Abraham. That he would lay laid claim to the fact that he existed before any of the fathers of their faith. He's identifying himself as the great I am who revealed himself to Moses. When Moses was commissioned by God, you remember the story, he was uh, commissioned to go help the Israelites get out of Egypt as, as they were there. And God was calling Moses and Moses didn't know what to say in order to gain credibility with the, with the Israelites. And he says, who will I tell them has sent me? And in Exodus chapter 3, God says to Moses that he is to tell them that I am who I am has sent you. When Jesus or when God makes this statement to Moses, it signifies the real being of who God is. His self-existence, that he is the being of all beings. It describes his eternality and his immutability as well as his consistency and faithfulness in fulfilling his promises because it includes all time, past, present, and future. The sense is not only I am what I am at present, but I am what I have been and what I am and what I shall be and and shall be what I am. God's own words about his eternal eternality speak to us from the pages of Scripture said by john piper if he is god and supersedes abraham or any other religious leader the implications are incredible it means he is king he is king of his church he is king of this world and what he says and what he does supersedes anybody or anything whether that be any other preacher myself pastor matt john MacArthur. Tim Keller, whatever person you follow, James McDonald, whoever it is that you follow, Christ alone supersedes. And that rocked the world that day. And it rocks our world today. If he has existed for all time, he supersedes everything. And if he is God, 
then he also holds all the attributes of God, which he's saying in that is an incredible one, that he is eternal. So we would make this statement about Jesus. Jesus is eternal. He was there and has always existed from the beginning of creation in the world. He existed before Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Saul and David and all the people of the Old Testament, all the people that we know of. He existed before that. And he does exist today and will exist for an eternity to come, way beyond you and I's lifetime. It will never end. And that's why the song in heaven will be this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Do you realize that this this attribute of God makes it into the song of heaven? That's how important this attribute is. And so while we may be constrained by time, God is not. He's the author of time. He existed long before time came into existence. He exists outside of that. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. You know, whenever we read words in scripture that talk about and refer to time, it's talking about our time, not God's time. He's not bound by time. Doesn't that blow your mind? He's not bound by time to be locked into this moment. He can exist in all those times and there is no beginning and end to him. Time exists within him. That blows my mind when I start to think about it. Smoke almost rises from my ears and I don't know what to do with it because it's a big thought. God is not bound by time. He's eternal. And Jesus makes this claim to a group of people who couldn't believe that the guy standing before them wearing just everyday clothes, standing with a group of friends that were just everyday kind of guys, would say he is this God, the God of eternity, the God of the past and the God of the future. And controversy emerged. (laughs) So we often find ourselves like that in the crowd where controversy emerges over who Jesus is. And people fill in the blanks with answers and have all these declarations about what they're going to do with Jesus. Who is he? I hear answers all the time, things about, well, there's many directions and many paths to to Jesus, isn't there? To heaven, to whatever the end destination is. There's many paths there. I've heard people explain him as just a good man, but he's not exclusive. I've heard people explain him this way and not know what to do because they would say he couldn't be a loving God. How could he send people to an eternal existence apart from him? I've heard others say, I don't really need him. I appreciate him. He's a good man and I draw some of my morals from him, the ones I want from him, but I'm fine without him. And we may find ourselves at times standing in the crowd trying to find answers of what to do with Jesus. Just like the people in John chapter 8 were, what do I do with this man? Jesus had his disciples aside one day, and we find this story in Matthew 16. It's kind of a side trail here, but Jesus had his disciples aside with him, and he was asking them questions about this. And he said, when they came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked them, his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So he keeps it general here. And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and some say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So Jesus asks in this first couple verses, who do the people say I am? 
Here the culture had lots of different explanations, none of which declared him as God. They had all kinds of ideas about who he might be. But one individual in the crowd responds to Jesus' next question. And so it says, Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And so Simon Peter, I can imagine how he might have raised his hand. He was the bold one and always seemed to blurt out the answer. But listen to what he said. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He recognized Jesus' deity. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus always brings it to the personal point. It doesn't matter what the crowd says about Jesus. What matters is what do you say about Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? That's what's important. The crowds have an answer, but what do you say about Jesus? Do you declare him as God? Do you follow him as God? And if he is God, then that means he holds all authority in our lives. It says in that scripture too that it was the father who had revealed it to him. That there was some sort of interaction that had to happen between God and the person where Simon had to have that confirmed to him by God's spirit. Simon could observe all the things that God had done, but the spirit of God had to work within him. That's how Jesus reveals himself to us. That's how he confirms it to us. So, in these questions, there's the personal side. Is he God? Is he your God? If Jesus had not been God, if we buzz past this, think about this for a moment. His death would not have been sufficient to pay the penalty for our sins. A created being, which Jesus would be if he were not God, could not pay the infinite penalty required for sin against an infinite God. Only God could pay for such an infinite penalty. Only God could take on the sins of the world and die and be resurrected, proving his victory over sin and over death. Our faith is built on the fact that Jesus is God. And so that is the conflict. That is the place that these people in the crowd found themselves. The story falls shortly after the story that we had read last week where Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world and it began to stir a whole bunch of people up. It made people angry, primarily the Pharisees and the scribes that are described in here. And so Jesus has made this I am statement, but it happened in the middle of this argument. And so you can follow it through chapter 8, but I'm going to summarize it for you here. And then we want to pull out two things. Two implications that if Jesus really is God, it matters to us. And so let's follow this story through. Here in John chapter 8, Jesus has asserted that freedom is only for those who abide in his teaching. And the implication being that the Pharisees were not free because they had rejected Jesus. Verses 31 and 32 in John chapter 8. We're going to come back to these in just a moment. And so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed... If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So here he is. He said this to the, in front of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees have rejected him, and they have not found freedom. Jesus is talking about a spiritual freedom, but what the, the Pharisees believed he was saying was a physical freedom. And they're looking around going, we have never been imprisoned before. We're free. 
Somehow they happen to forget Egypt in that statement. But they say we're free. They're not in physical bondage. And so Jesus clarifies that statement again. He kind of doubles down on them in verses 34 through 39. And he clarifies that he's talking about a slavery to sin. And so there in those verses, the the Pharisees begin to get it. Christ never denied in those verses the Pharisees' physical ancestry, that they come from Abraham. But he went against their claim of their spiritual heritage. In other words, he's saying to them that just because you are descendants of Abraham doesn't mean you're following God. If you were, you would be doing the works of Abraham, he says. And so they're not. And instead, they're rejecting or even trying to destroy the very word of God himself. And that meant only one thing, that they were being used by the devil. And so the Pharisees became really upset at this, as you can imagine, that that. Jesus would declare this about them. They don't know what to do with them, but he's saying some things about them that that strike right to the heart. And the Pharisees became so upset that they accused Jesus now of being demon-possessed, which is ludicrous. And at that point, the Pharisees demand to know what Jesus is really talking about and who he really is. And that's when Jesus makes that statement that he is, or he, before Abraham was, he is. And so then the Pharisees, getting it now, try to stone Jesus because they don't like what he has to say. So what is this saying to us? Two things. The first of them is this, is that only Jesus can set us free. If Jesus is eternal, only he can set us free. The Pharisees thought that their ancestry was what set them free. Simply the line that they came from. But Jesus is making a bold statement. He's not saying that your ancestry set you free. None of that will set you free. In fact, ancestry, no thing that you have in your life, no rejection of Christ will set you free. No other God can set you free. No other religion can set you free. No other person can set you free spiritually. No other therapy can set you free spiritually. Ignoring it won't set you free spiritually. Only Christ can set you free spiritually. Only Christ. He's making an exclusive claim to that. Many people in this world think that they're fully free if they can do whatever they want. Cast off all restraint. I'll do what I want, then I'm really free. But what ends up happening is they actually, without knowing it, become the most religious people. Because they become a slave to the very things that they thought would set them free. You ever tasted of that? It's a bitter place to be in when you become a slave to the things that you thought were your freedom. But Christ says he alone sets man free. If you abide in my word, if you follow Christ's word, then you may be set free. Only those who follow that are set free. Those who rest on him by faith alone and follow him find freedom. And so that's one thing that Jesus wants us to understand. If he's eternal, then only he can set us free. And there's another major implication, and it is this, that death is not the end. In John 8, 51, and I may have printed the wrong thing on the screen there, but in verse 51, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. 
Anyone who keeps my word will never see death. And so at this point in the argument, Jesus has made this claim of his deity by saying that if we abide in his words, we'll find freedom. But he makes another claim that only he could claim that if we abide in him, we'll never see death. He's not teaching a faith by works here. He's teaching faith that comes only in, rests only in Christ alone, in Christ's work on the cross. But he's also not teaching here that people will be annihilated someday as if, after death, we wouldn't exist if we don't follow him. What he's saying here is absolutely important. He's making a statement that plays into an area of thinking that we don't like to go into a lot. It has to do with life and death. Because man's souls are eternal, according to the word of God. That our souls live on because Jesus is eternal. It opens up the door that we are eternal in our souls. And how often do we think about life and death? We used to live by a cemetery. And if you live by a cemetery, it's kind of a morbid place to be. (laughs) Our old house was right next door. And we used to joke about how the neighbors were really quiet. And uh, they were. But we also wanted to put up on vinyl, on a window. And it probably would have been a good thing, even though we would say this to everybody who came to visit us. I had a whole repertoire of jokes. I could go on about living next to a cemetery. But we had this this, uh, spot where we wanted to put up these words. It came when the psalmist said, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That we would consider our days and what our days count for. You know, there's a lot of truth in that because we were made to consider eternity. In Ecclesiastes, it tells us that God has put eternity into man's heart. And so as much as we were made for time and to exist within time, we're responsible to deal with time but we're also responsible to deal with eternity. And so we have to think about this, this fact that we only die once. And that death, that is the crossing line of determining where we will be, where we will exist. If my soul lives on forever, where we will exist. Nicodemus was a man who was trying to seek God. He wanted to know what God had to say and what, what Jesus meant and what Jesus believed and. He sought out Jesus. And when Jesus was talking to him, he said this to Nicodemus, that you must be born again. Those words were kind of confusing to Nicodemus because he looked at himself and he goes, I've been born, haven't I? What do you mean I have to be born again? Do I have to climb back in my mother's womb and be born again? Absolutely not. What Jesus was talking about was a spiritual birth. A trust in Jesus that is a new beginning that What Jesus did on the cross would pay the penalty for his sins. And Nicodemus was forced to wrestle with that place in his life where would he have a new spiritual start. One way to say it is this. You can be born twice and only die once. In other words, have a a physical birth and a spiritual birth and you will only die a a physical death. So born twice and have one death. Or be born once and die twice. So I could be born once physically, but I'm going to die physically and spiritually in an eternity without Christ. Something we don't like to think about and talk about. But it's true. If Jesus is eternal, he's laying claim to this fact. And he's laying claim to the statement that, hey, if you follow me, it opens up the door for you to walk in eternity with me. 
versus an eternal separation from him. John Piper said, the answer of Jesus is that he was the great I am from all eternity and that he became a mortal man so that he could die for sin and destroy in death the one who has the power of death and rise again triumphant over sin and death and in this way free us from the lifelong bondage of fear and death. We were meant to consider eternity. Second Timothy 1.10, Jesus Christ abolished death and brought life in immortality to light through the message of the gospel. The gospel is what brings light. It's what brings life after eternity. And so we can believe Jesus' words based on what he said. But there's the other part of that verse. There's another part to it where it says, if we keep his word, in other words, if we live by his word, we will, we will never see death. If we trust Christ, we will never see death. And so we could say it this way, you only live once. For many people, that statement has become a catchphrase of saying, yeah, I live once, so I'm going to drink of everything this world has to offer me. I'm going to bring it in. I'm going to do whatever I want. But Jesus' challenge to us is this. Are we living our life for the glory of Christ? Is our life meaningful to Christ? Is it what Christ wants? Are we abiding in his word? Are we carrying out his word? That's what matters in this life because this life is what plays out our destiny beyond death. Our destiny is determined by these days. Not a faith that's earned, but a faith that's given. I've only sailed a couple of times in my life on a sailboat. One of those was last summer. We got to go out to my father-in-law's place on the Jersey Shore and not to shoot a TV show with me in it, but it was, it, was to be, <laughs> it was to be a time when we got to go out as a family and we got to spend some time out on his, his small sailboat. And if you've ever gone sailing, there's one side of it that's just terrifying because <laughs> there's a little danger involved in being on a small sailboat. It can tip over and you can be trying to get this thing back up and and get it righted again. But there's something amazing about being on the water in the quietness of sailing along where only wind is carrying you along. No motor, no manufactured thing is carrying you along. You know, in life, we're seeking purpose and we're seeking what is my life to be about. And all of us are on a journey of trying to determine that and figure out what God wants for us and in us in our life. And what our life is going to count for in the end. The wind on a sailboat is like the eternity of Christ, which fills the sails to move our purpose along in life. Is our purpose driven along by the fact that eternity exists because Jesus is eternal? I can live life in the light of eternity and it'll change everything about how I live today. What won't matter is this, how big my checking account was. What won't matter is how many adventures I had on the weekends. But what will matter is did I live for the glory of Christ? Did I seek him? Did I do his will? Did I bring people along with me? Did I declare his praises to people? Was I a person who was transformed by the glory of Christ and living that out in the light of eternity? That will matter. I want to hear on the other side of death, well done, good and faithful servant. 
I think of the words of Charles Studd, which I would recommend you go back and listen to this entire poem. But he said, only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. There's so much truth in that little statement. Only what's done for Christ will matter in our lives. Is your life purpose driven by eternity? There was a obituary that I came across of a young girl who was only eight years old, tragically killed in a car accident. But the testimony of this obituary was remarkable to me because her life was lived in light of eternity. You see, what happened in her story is just a few years before she was uh, met death, she had been invited over to a sleepover with a friend, and this friend had invited her then to church. And so she went along with her as a young girl to church, and that morning she fell in love with Jesus and the teachings of the Bible. She found Christ to be her Savior. She repented. And this girl would set her alarm every single week to get up and go to church. True story. She'd wait outside on the curb for the church bus to come by, and she was the only one in her family that would go to church. And the bus would come by, pick her up, brought her to church, and there she would sit in Sunday school, drinking in the stories of Jesus. And she would go home, this obituary says, and retell the stories to her family, who would listen to her, who would listen to the songs she sang, and she would recount this to her family as she witnessed to them what she was drinking in each week. And the obituary says about her that her faith is helping friends and family find answers in this challenging time. Let me pull out two things about this. One of them is this, that there was a Sunday school teacher on the other end of that who was sacrificing time and investing themselves in something that matters in the kingdom, that will matter in eternity. The other thing is this, that there was a friend who said, hey, will you come along with me to church that took a risk of being shamed by saying, would you come to church to hear this? that witnessed to this, this little girl. And there she was saved. What if they hadn't lived their life in the light of eternity? She wouldn't have heard it. And the other part of it is this, is that this girl would go home and she would share that testimony back to her family. She was living in the light of eternity. That's what we're talking about. That's the kind of life that we mean when we talk about this. And so Jesus' invitation to us is great. It's grand. It's not something to be afraid of. It's something to jump into because it's so good. Even when it seems risky at the beginning, it's so good. And so what is it that you need to change in order to live for Christ? What do you need to change? Since God is eternal, he can and will be and will continue to be forever our one safe place as, as his time-driven children. Psalm 90, verse 1, that we read at the beginning of the service, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Lord Jesus, that's the kind of life we want. We want the kind of life that looks to eternity and says, we want to live with you. We want to seek and use all of our short days here to matter for you and not ourselves. So rid us of ourselves, our pride, our own selfishness, and open us up to this whole new world of living for Christ, for your glory and for your kingdom's sake. Help us to be obedient students to your word, to know it and to live it. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.